0: Amen. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, well, over the last couple of months, there have been countless graduation ceremonies in May and June. And, um, you know, these, these ceremonies, whether it was from high school or even middle school or elementary school or college, these, these ceremonies were a way for people to end one chapter of life or schooling and move on to the next. And over the years, there have been some famous and memorable commencement speeches. Winston Churchill famously said in his good British accent, never, never, never give up. And I heard that was his entire speech, and he sat down. That would be a really good one to attend. Probably a good sermon, nice and short and to the point, right? And then Mia Hamm, Rihanna, and Paula Abdul all used the phrase, follow your heart, as a key theme in their speeches. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in North Carolina and an author, recently spoke at at some graduation ceremonies stating, don't follow your heart. In fact, he's got a book by that title. So what are you going to do? Listen to these. Anyways, are you going to follow your heart or not follow your heart? Admiral, Admiral William H. McRaven famously said, make your bed. And he wrapped that up with all sorts of other teachings, little things that will change your life. In fact, he also has a book on that. In the midweek, I talked about Robert Fulgham's All I I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And in many ways, that can be a summation of all of these life truths, those things that we could learn as children that we could take on into adulthood. And it's, it's interesting, shortly after Fulgham published his first book in 1986, Dr. Seuss published the last book that we would be published in his lifetime in 19, about 1991, and that was called, Oh, the Places You'll Go. And it reads like an encouragement to, uh, to turn the page on this new chapter in life with vigor, with realism, and with hope. And so today, I bring that up because today as we conclude our brief introduction into the wisdom found in the book of Proverbs, we're reflecting on Proverbs 3, 1 through 12 that Nathan read just a few moments ago. And and these verses could be received like a commencement message, like a graduation speech, maybe from a father to a child. And I think there's some interesting things that Solomon does in this passage. And in fact, in the midweek, I encouraged you, I asked you to go count some of the verbs. What are the positive verbs and what are the negative verbs or the positive commands and the negative commands? And what Solomon does is he lays out eight positive commands in this. And I'll just run through these real quickly. In fact, what I did in my Bible is I circled some, circled uh, the negatives i mean squared, put a square around the positive ones. But here's some of the positive commands keep, bind, write, trust, acknowledge, fear, turn, and honor. All of these things he's calling his son to do. And then he's got some negative commands essentially, don't do this, don't forget, don't forsake, lean not, be not wise in your own eyes, do not despise, and do not be weary. And I think what's, what a, part of the reason I find that interesting is that there are times in our lives when we need both encouragement, we need exhortation, we need that encouragement to do something right or good or just, and then we also need some prohibitions. We need someone to tell us, don't do that. And here Solomon presents both in his little commencement speech to his son, and with each of these commands, Solomon provides a positive outcome or result that would be the bene- that would benefit in our lives if we would heed his advice. And it would be really easy to treat these verses and really all of the book of Proverbs as simply pragmatic solutions for life. But I think it's better to think of these uh, individual statements as things that are generally true. These are observations that he's made. But in these verses, there is a sense in which the ways of God are being seen as bathed in wisdom. In other words, when we walk in wisdom, we walk in God's ways. Or when we walk in God's ways, we walk in wisdom. And because of the nature of these statements and these verses, we're going to look at each pair of verses because he gives the command and he gives the blessing as a couplet, as a pair. And what, what we're going to do is I'm going to consolidate these down into a statement, and I'm not trying to replace Scripture with something pithy or that's tweetable, right? But I, I want us to hopefully get grasp the, what Solomon is saying in each of these couplets of verses. So we don't have, as you notice in your bulletin, we don't have a full outline, but all of these statements are gonna be up there followed by the scripture if you wanna look at that. So let's begin. In these first two verses, it's almost as though Solomon is exhorting his son. He said, listen to parental figures for a long and peaceful life. Listen to your parents, listen to your father, listen to parental figures for a long and peaceful life. According to David Atkinson, one of the commentators I looked at, This passage is one of 10 passages in the first several chapters of Proverbs that begin with that statement, my son. It's as though it's these fatherly advices, this fatherly advice given to a son. And each of these paternal exhortations begins with that call to a son. And then these 12 verses specifically really seem to talk about our duty to God? How should we relate to God? How should we walk in the wisdom of God? And so here in these first two verses, Solomon is calling his son to heed his advice. Uh, Proverbs 3, 1 to 2 says, My child, never forget the things that I have taught you. Store my commands in your heart. If you do this, you will live many years and your life will be satisfied. You see, I think in an ideal world, In the world that God intended at creation, fathers and mothers would pass along godly advice to their children. And yet, in the fallen world in which we live, we recognize that not all of the advice that we pass along is truly godly or good. As we discussed last week, we observe and inherit some negative attributes and actions. But God God has given us the responsibility as parents to lovingly instruct, instruct and to guide our children. Elsewhere in Proverbs, Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In recognizing the fallen tendencies of our human nature, the Apostle Paul urges fathers, he says, to be mindful of how they relate to their children. Ephesians 6, 4 said, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But what happens when fathers or mothers don't know the Lord? Or what happens when hypocrisy in our own lives as parents prevent us from bearing godly advice and being a truly godly influence? I think this is where the church steps in. This is where God has given us people at various stages in life, people who can pour into us and truly demonstrate godliness to us. We see this throughout the New Testament epistles, especially the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. In fact, listen to what Titus chapter 2, 1 to 8 says. Paul writes, "'As for you, Titus, promote the kind of teaching, promote the kind of living that reflects in wholesome teaching.'" Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train younger women to love their husbands and their children to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good and to be submissive to their husbands, then they will not bring shame on the word of God. In the same way, he continues, I encourage the young men to live wisely and yourself and you yourself be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and the seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. And then those who oppose us will will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. The point is that for those of us who are mature or older, we get to be the godly influence and examples. We get to be those parental figures in the lives of those who are coming behind us. Our lives and our speech should teach. So how are we doing? Is our teaching and living making a positive impact on the next generation? Or are we, as as Paul wrote there, are we dishonoring the word of God with our conduct? But for those of us who are younger, Solomon seems to be communicating that heeding the advice of parents and even parental figures will generally result in a long and peaceful life. Your parents and the people who are around you at church want the best for you. So how are you doing at heeding the advice of your parents and the godly men and women who are older than you? Are you paying attention and following, or are you trying to pave your own path? Let me encourage you. The advice that your parents and other older brothers and sisters in Christ are giving are designed to give you a long and peaceful life. But the second thing that, Paul, that Solomon writes here, he exhorts his son by stating that a loving and faithful life will result in good favor with God and with people. When we think about the distinction between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world, we can almost differentiate them this way, in that God's wisdom is based on timeless principles and worldly wisdom is often based on what is pragmatic or what is practical, what is efficient for the moment what is expedient for the moment. There are people who might seem to succeed in life by doing what is practical and expedient, but lives lived with steadfast love and faithfulness will not only honor God, but will make a positive impact in society. Proverbs 3, 3 to 4 says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success. In the sight of God and man, Solomon's encouragement here is not just outward actions that seem to exhibit love and faithfulness, but love and faithfulness that come from the very core of who we are, how we think, binding them around our necks, letting our minds and our brains be restricted, be confined confined by love and faithfulness. Writing them on our hearts at the very core of our being, being men and women of love and faithfulness. This week, I had an opportunity to finish listening to the biography of Walter Johnson written by his grandson, Henry Johnson. I happened to get to have lunch with Henry last month and learned about the book. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And prior to that luncheon and listening to the book, I only knew Walter Johnson's name because his name is on a high school here in montgomery county i had no idea what he did until i started listening to the book and what i learned were some fabulous statistics about this guy i know some of you may not be baseball fans but let me just give you a little bit of insight into this guy walter johnson he played professional baseball with the washington nationals aka senators back about 100 years ago he, he played with them for 20 years. He is believed to be one of the fastest and most accurate pitchers of all time. In fact, he's still currently ranked number two of all time as best pitchers. He still holds the record for the most shutouts with 110. Some of you are like, oh, who cares? What's a shutout? He's among the best pitchers in strikeouts, most complete games, and has one of the lowest earned run averages. He allowed some of the fewest runs against him for most of his career. And many people contend that if he had played for a better team, his statistics and his win streaks would still be records today. But at best, the Washington team 100 years ago was mediocre most of his time. He did get to go to two World Series and he won, he got to win one of them. And all those statistics aside, I think one of the things that is, was most striking about Walter Johnson was his character. This guy grew up in the Midwest, he grew up in, on a farm. He's, his life seemed to have been marked by steadfast love and faithfulness, not to mention humility. He was the faithful husband of one wife who, unfortunately, after about 20 years of marriage, she died at a young age. They had six children, one of whom died as a toddler. Walter, when, when Walter Johnson would go to opposing ballparks, especially when they were in the, the run for the World Series, the opposing teams, the opposing crowds would cheer, would stand to their feet because of the kind of guy that he was. They would applaud him, and he would just humbly take the mound. He kind of had this loafing style. He's about six foot one with really long arms. And he just kind of loaf over the mound and throw the ball and just went to work. He didn't let the fame get to his head. Someone commented at one point in time that he was probably the only person in the country who was liked by everybody. I mean, think about it. Politicians can't agree on anything, but both houses of Congress, both parties, Democrat, Republican, they all liked him. All the presidents, he caught 13 first pitches from presidents, and they all liked him. Because he was a great baseball player, but more importantly, because of his character. People could look at every part of his life and say, this is a man worth emulating. Some guys back in the day would intentionally bean people in the head with baseballs. The pitchers would, in order to get people to go away from the plate, they would throw at him. He was so honest, he didn't want to scuff up the ball. He just wanted to pitch. He wanted the best in others, and he wanted to provide his best without cheating. He didn't drink. He didn't gamble. He didn't sleep around. He spoke well of others. By all accounts, he was a good man and was truly favored in the sight. Of others, As I said, he, he grew up in the Midwest, started doing baseball out in California before living here. In fact, he owned a bunch of land out near Sugarloaf Mountain uh, right up until his, the, the day that he died. But one of the downsides of, of Walter Johnson is that it never appeared he was a godly man. He was a good man, but he never made a profession of faith. And I tell you about Walter Johnson because I I want you to see someone who lived with love and faithfulness and truly did find favor and success even through the difficulties and tragedies of his life. God's timeless values were exhibited in his life. And I want to encourage us too, we wouldn't have to look outside this room to find people like Walter Johnson who are demonstrating steadfast love and faithfulness, who have a devotion to God. Yesterday in the men's breakfast, as Mark was leading us, he asked the question, he says, where do we have an example of purity in our culture? That was the topic yesterday. And one of the conclusions we came to is that ultimately, we as the church are intended to be that light, that witness, that example of purity and godliness. Imagine what would happen if we began to put on steadfast love and faithfulness, if we began to act and speak and think in those ways rather than in the divisive ways that we so often see in our culture. Next, Solomon notes that trusting in and doing things God's way puts you on a level path. You probably know these verses. This is the Tanakh translation, and it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths smooth. These familiar verses are probably among the first we learned as children. And their familiarity, unfortunately, can sometimes lead us to overlook the profound implications found within You see, trusting in Yahweh, trusting in God with all of our heart is a challenging thing to do. I mean, think about it. How often do we truly trust Him? Is our trust merely lip service? Yeah, God, I trust you for my salvation, but I'm going to take care of everything else. Do we rely more on our abilities or our finances or our politics or our employment than we do on God? Wearsby notes that trust literally means to lie down helpless, face down. Relying on our own understanding implies that we think we know better than God. We think that that the outcomes we expect will happen in predictable ways, and it's as though we're choosing a certain path only to find it riddled with potholes and stones. And yet here, Solomon seems to imply that if we have a heart position of being face down before the Lord And an acknowledgement of his sovereign reign, then the path that God leads us down will be true, will be smooth, or as other translations say, a straight or level path. And next, kind of in keeping with that same theme of having our minds and hearts tuned toward God's ways, Solomon instructs his son with the principle that physical refreshment and healing come when we revere God and shun evil. Look at verses seven and eight. Solomon writes, Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. And again, we come back to that worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. Our own wisdom can tend to be short sighted, even selfish. We can try to manipulate and scheme and plot in order to personally gain. And the stress and anxiety that accompanies our conniving wreaks havoc. On our bodies. According to Healthline, a a website that I ran across, chronic anxiety is way more than simply mental anguish. Here are some of the side effects of anxiety. And think about this coming from a a place where we we are lacking integrity in our lives. When we're lacking that, when we're being dishonest with ourselves and God, there is that place that friction can cause anxiety. And as a result, we get this sense of doom. We can have panic attacks. We can have depression or headaches or irritability. But then physically, we also can run into breathing problems or heart problems, an upset stomach, fatigue, increased blood pressure, and other aches and pains. And we might easily assume that anxiety, which is a fear or dread or uneasiness, is only mental. But when our actions betray our convictions or what we know to be right and wrong then we are forced to deal with the mental and physical consequences and these verses that that Solomon writes here are, are he's communicating that a life lived with integrity is a life that is truly lived God's way it'll be free from physical effects that can be that can result from being dishonest and sometimes we may be tempted to wrongly believe that our spiritual life and our physical lives are detached. And this proverb clearly counters that. In fact, the psalmist also acknowledges that we have physical, that our sin has physical consequences in our bodies. Psalm 32, verses one to five says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose Record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me and my strength evaporated like water in summer heat. But finally, I confessed my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. Beloved, when we fear or revere the Lord, we are then prompted to turn away from evil and to shun that short sighted wisdom. We get to live in wholeness, integrity, and joy. So, up to this point in the chapter, in this chapter in Proverbs, we've been reminded to heed the advice of our elders to live faithfully, to trust God, and to live. With integrity. In the next couple of verses, he gets to our wealth. He hits us where it hurts the most, right? And Solomon essentially says, true prosperity comes when we honor God with our wealth first. Proverbs three, nine to ten says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain, and your vats will overflow with good, good wine. Some time ago, Danielle turned me on to this podcast called the Dadville Podcast. And, and this podcast is, is, uh, is, of course, hosted by two dads who are also Christians, who are also musicians. And they'll bring on a variety of different people and, and talk about life and faith and careers and art and music and money and all sorts of things and how it all interacts. In fact, over the last few weeks, I got, got a chance to hear... Um, an interview that they did with uh, Kirk Cousins, who wh- he had a phenomenal interview with them, just a wonderful man of God. Also, Amy Grant, those of you guys, some of you guys may remember her from way back in the day. Also, the lead singer from the band Lady A. But this week, the one that I listened to was very interesting because it hit on money, and the guy that they, uh, they had on there was a guy named Greg Bomber who has written a lot about, or written some, about God and money and true wealth. And this guy, Bomber, he, he, he had already attained some semblance of wealth as a Christian. He was, ob, uh, uh, he was tithing in an obligatory manner. He was just saying, okay, God, this is yours. Okay, let me go. So he would take the first 10% and give it to God. Well, then he went away to, uh, to Harvard Business School to get his MBA and took a class at the Divinity School And began to search and scour scripture to try to understand more about how we should relate to God and our money. And and in the process of doing this, he he found that the average American gives 2.2% of their wealth annually toward charity. The average Christian American gives 2.3%. And yet, what have we all been heard? What are we expected? Not expected. What does Scripture teach? What have we been taught that Scripture says, how much should we be giving? A tithe, 10%. That's a far cry from 2.3% that the average American is is doing. The Old Testament, if we could scour that, we would find that it'd be more like 25%, which is way off from 2.3%. So often we think that we should be able to do whatever we want with money in order to have, have in the future and we need to save now, we need to provide for our families and yet Solomon here seems to be saying do things God's way with your money first and he's gonna bless the rest. He's going to bless it all. One of the things that I was really challenged by in that podcast is that this guy, Bomber said that he and his wife would, would look, look at their finances, look at their budget for the year, and they would basically plan how much they would give away. They said, what do, what do we really need to live on? And they got that number so low that they just found joy in giving and blessing and pouring into others. They start their year like that. For us as a family, I know I've shared this before, but we've we've just sort of taken the mindset. As it says here, the best part are the first fruits of our our money. We've taken the mindset, the first 10% of our gross income is going to the Lord through the church. Right off the bat, it almost never, barely gets into our bank account before it's out. And then on top of that, we give a little bit to some missionaries. That's just the standard that we've done. But sometimes it can be a bit of a habit. It can be a bit rote and not always an act of worship. So I want to just encourage us to to be thinking about, to, to consider what it would look like to honor God with our wealth first and then let him provide the rest. I still have a lot to learn about money. But I think that when we get on God's plan, there is wisdom in that. And finally, the writer of this part of Proverbs, Solomon, notes that we should embrace God's discipline because it's a sign of His love for us. Verses 11 and 12 say, My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline, and don't be upset when He corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects the child in whom he delights. It's no secret that when God disciplines his people, it can be painful. We saw that as we studied the book of Micah. The idolatry, the adultery, the the sinfulness, the injustice that the people of Israel were demonstrating resulted in God bringing in a a foreign army to to pull them out, to, to discipline them. And they were displaced from their homes and forced to make drastic changes in their lives. And I think for us, when God's convicting hand is heavy on us, it can seem overbearing and painful, and yet it's out of love that he wants us to be the men and women that he has ordained us to be. Running from God's correction will truly only prolong pain. Embracing his correction results in life. And friend, I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, some of this might seem a bit foreign to you. Some of this might seem strange. But let me ask you this. Have you ever felt that sense of guilt that something is just not right? That, there are, that you're not quite living up to all that you should be? That you've missed the mark? I think in many ways that is the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, yes, you've got this sin problem. But I want to encourage you. The Holy Spirit and God's word reveals that sin in our lives so that we can confess that to the Lord and trust that what Christ has done on the cross, when he paid the price for our sin, he made a way for us to be in a right relationship with God. So I want to encourage you, if you've not yet responded to him, come, respond, yield to his call for salvation, walk in the wisdom of his way, which ultimately is marked by salvation. Let me just close with a couple of thoughts. It's easy to look at these statements as being moralistic and even humanistic. We can view these like leadership nuggets or like an inspirational speech in order to make today better than yesterday, but I think there is a greater reason. As I said a bit before in the men's breakfast, we were talking about this idea of purity. When I I mentioned that guy Walter Johnson, here's a man who, who was known to be a good ball player, but he was known to be a good man. Scripture tells us that the church, God's people, not just Poolsville Baptist, but all of God's people are called to be salt and light. In, in the New Testament, we read, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus told his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. I read an article recently that talked about how how salt was not only a preservative, it not only adds flavor, but salt acts as a fertilizer. So, beloved, as the salt of the earth, we get to act in a way that prepares the soil of the souls of our friends and neighbors and family members to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we wisely walk in the ways of God, we not only gain personal benefits, but I believe we also make a difference in the world around us. So may we repent when we're not walking in God's ways. When we're not the salt, when our salt has lost its saltiness and our light has become too dim. Let's pray.